Um, let me just warn you, there's a whole lot that's going on in this scripture, and it's like enough for probably four sermons. Uh, I won't preach all four today. Um, but just as you, as you are listening, here are a couple of things to listen for. Jesus is invited to Simon the Pharisee's house for, um, to eat, and an uninvited woman joins in. So listen for the Pharisee's reaction and Jesus' admonition. And also, if you can, hear how the woman's humility leads to forgiveness and peace and new life for her. So hear now the word of God. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And the woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Holy wisdom, holy word. Please pray with me. May these words, God, speak your truth. May our hearts be open to hearing your word, whatever that word may be. And may our lives be transformed by your grace. Amen. So I had a dream a week or so ago. Not like the Martin Luther King Jr. kind of dream, the kind you have at night. But it was prophetic in its own way. I had a dream that I walked into a Target store 
only to learn that the store was closed to shopping for the day. However, the deli counter was open, and it was this tall, long bar that sat just inside the door of of the Target store. And there was a man behind the counter, and he was busily taking and fulfilling orders for food and drinks. So I went up to the bar, and I asked for communion. Hardly looking at me, without missing a step in his busyness, he placed a chunk of bread and a small glass of water on the counter in front of me. So I took the communion, and I watched him. I was intent on engaging with him and getting his attention, trying to make eye contact with him. So I stuck with him, and I followed his rapid movements all around the bar. And finally, when he was cashing someone out at the, ca- at the cash register, he looked briefly at me. And I said to him, when I look into your eyes, which is not easy to do, I see Jesus. We held the connected gaze for a moment as he took in my words. And that was the end of my dream. Like, who does that? Who dreams of seeing Jesus in a stranger's eyes? Apparently I do. I had not previously, but apparently now I do. But I believe that that God does. But God does in more of the Martin Luther King Jr. kind of a way. I can hear God saying, I have a dream that one day all of my children will see me in each other and will live out the true meaning of love. I have a dream. God's dream is of heaven on earth. God's reign of love right here in our midst. How different would that story have been, the one that we just heard Karen read, if Simon the Pharisee had looked into the sinful woman's eyes and had seen God in her eyes? What would have changed if he had seen in her the love that Jesus was there to share and to teach and to model? Simon is a pretty relatable guy. He was basically an upstanding man. He was pious and active in his faith tradition. He had strict observance of the commandments and the Sabbath. He lived well, and he felt pretty good about himself. And many of us, in in lots of ways, are like Simon. We, We live basically good lives. We follow the rules. We believe in God. We do what is right. It it probably didn't even occur to Simon that he would have any needs, especially a need for forgiveness. Because he lived a good life, he must have felt like his bases were covered. However, no matter how great we are and how much service we engage in or how many rules we follow, we all have a need for God. We all have reason to seek grace and to receive God's love. I hate to tell you this, but we all fall short of perfection. Every one of us, even me. Simon certainly fell short of perfection, and and Jesus called him on it. So how might Simon's reaction to the sinful woman have, have looked if Simon had engaged in a different way? There are at least a couple of important points that would have looked very different if Simon had a sense of the dream that God has for all of us. You see, Simon was blind to his own faults and his own shortcomings. He thought of himself as such an upstanding and righteous man that there was no need for forgiveness. Therefore, he inadvertently 
inadvertently excluded himself from God's grace. Because he didn't recognize his need for forgiveness. He didn't see that he too had faults and shortcomings. His heart was closed to God's abundant and ever-ready love and grace. And as a result, he failed to experience the new life and the salvation and the redemption that comes with receiving God's grace. The woman, on the other hand, the woman knew that she needed to be forgiven. And if ever she forgot, someone in her community was telling her because she was called the sinful woman. She knew. And she was aware of the ways in which she lived in brokenness and she caused pain to herself and others. And that humble awareness opened her heart to live in faith and to receive the love of forgiveness. And her deep gratitude at receiving the forgiveness was the source of new life and joy and peace for her. And Jesus acknowledged this in his directive to her when he said, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Simon had his skills, his intelligence, his social savvy, and perhaps even his good looks to rely on. And he chose not to lean on God. His self-reliant blindness made it impossible for him to see in the woman the love of God as shown through Jesus' life and teaching, even when Jesus was sitting right there in his own home. But if, if Simon were to live out God's dream, he not only would treat the woman with love, but he would also receive love and grace, peace and new life for himself. Okay, so Simon didn't have an open heart. As a result of his extreme self-sufficiency, he had no idea that he even needed grace. His heart was cut off from knowing the power and the love and the transformation that comes with receiving God's love. His heart was closed. But even more poignant than that, his eyes were closed. When he looked at the woman who was washing and kissing and anointing Jesus' feet, he saw sin. He saw faults. He saw failings. And yes, those things were true of her. However, there's so much more. What Simon didn't see is that she is, by the nature of being alive, she is a child of God. Let me say that again because it applies to all of us. Because she exists, she is a child of God. And even more, Simon didn't see that she and he are connected. Yes, they are siblings in God's family, connected, kin, not so very different from one another. God binds them together, the Pharisee and the sinful woman. And connection is powerful. When we recognize that we are, we are all truly members of one body, the body of Christ, we are open to more life and more fullness and more love and more healing than ever before. When we look at another person, maybe even someone hard to look at, someone hard to see, and we see Jesus in their eyes, we are transformed. Our judgments subside and fear is released and joy builds and love is foundational. Simon's closed heart and closed eyes 
prevented him from seeing and experiencing God's love through the forgiveness that he needed and through relationships with those around him. It kept him from being a part of God's dream for all of God's creation, that each of us will look into another's eyes and see God, that we will open our hearts and experience God's love and grace, and that we will act from that experience of communion to help create God's reign of love, heaven on earth. So we're United Methodists, and in the United Methodist Church, by our very structure, we live out that God-ordained connection. In fact, our church as a whole is called a connectional system. The worldwide denomination is often referred to as the connection. I was just at my annual conference in Dallas, Texas, where I'm from. That's where I hold my clergy membership. And at our opening worship, Bishop Robert Hayes of the Oklahoma Conference preached. And in his opening words, he spoke about the tornadoes and the devastation that's been going on in Oklahoma. And he expressed this great gratitude that the denomination has reached out in his conference's time of need. And his words were, bishops, leaders, and clergy from all over the connection have been in touch with us to offer us help and support. You see, that's how the leaders in the United Methodist Church understand our inner relationships with one another, that we are all siblings in the family of God, connected in God's love. The United Methodist Church recognizes that we're all connected to one another in the family of God, and and the church is organized structurally and administratively around that understanding. The denomination is intentionally decentralized and democratic, with both clergy and laity working together to set agenda and policy and leadership. No individual church is the total body of Christ. We are all the connection. We are all members of the same family, not only in this church, but around the world. We're bound together by a common mission to reach out and to help all people experience that transformation that comes with being disciples of Christ. We are in connection with United Methodists around the world to live out God's dream for all of creation, to do our part in creating heaven right here on earth. So when I was at my annual conference, I was very aware that I live across the country from my clergy colleagues. And yet we're all connected in our ministry and mission. I was also aware that the clergy here are also my clergy colleagues, and we too are connected in ministry and mission. Right, Dirk? Anywhere we go, where there are United Methodists, we are a part of the connection. And one reminder of our common bond in Christ came at the very beginning of our annual conference. We opened our conference singing the hymn that opened conferences around the world since the late 1700s, the hymn we sang this morning at the opening of worship, and Are We Yet Alive? It was written by Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism. And the Wesleys began the tradition that we continue today to open with this acknowledgement of the connection we all have with one another in Christ, loved by God, saved by faith, and humble before God who gives us new life. We sing it to continue the tradition. 
We sing it to remember our connection. We sing it to be more alive in Jesus the Christ as we attend to the business of the church. And as I stood there among my Texas colleagues singing this hymn that connects us to one another around the world and back through so many generations of the denomination, I felt that sense of connection more than I ever have before. I was in awe knowing that this month, many, many United Methodists, including all the ones in this conference, will stand and sing that very song to begin their work in attending to the mission and the business of the church. But the connection goes way beyond the work of the clergy. John Wesley believed and taught that faith and good works go together, such that what we believe is confirmed in what we do. Our actions reflect our faith, and our faith inspires service. The work of United Methodists is to receive God's love, and in response to that love, to love our neighbors, and to seek justice and renewal in the world. Wesley held firm that faith always includes a social dimension. None of us can be solitary Christians, but rather must engage in a community of faith that is both nurturing and serving in the world. And when any of us reach out in service and love, we do it on behalf of the whole church. We represent the faith of the connection in our actions. So when one person or local church or annual conference engages in living God's dream, we do it on behalf of United Methodists everywhere. And our own Daryl Lowe is receiving the Bishop's Award this year. The Bishop's Award is the highest award given, and it's given to recognize Daryl's outstanding service, both locally and around the world. The work that Daryl engages in extends God's reign of love and helps build God's dream of heaven on earth. That ministry also represents the connection. Daryl represents you and me and others around the world in the body of Christ. And when any of us reach out, we do it on behalf of the rest. We do it in the name of God. We do it as United Methodist Christians in the world. So the dream I had last week helped me to remember the dream that God has had since the very beginning of time. The dream that we will see the best in people. We will acknowledge God in them. And we will treat each other in love. Knowing that we are all connected. We are all related. We are all bound in the kinship of Jesus the Christ. So how might the story of Jesus eating at Simon the Pharisee's house have been different? If Simon had looked at the woman... And seen the best in her. If he had seen God in her and had remembered that she was his sister. So I ask today, whose eyes do we need to look into and see Jesus in them? I invite you to think about what person comes to mind. Or what group of people or what type of person comes to mind, who maybe you look at with judgment or with anger or discomfort or hatred or even envy. And I challenge you to shift your focus this week 
to intentionally engage with someone in a way that you normally don't. I challenge you to look into someone's eyes and see Jesus. See the love that God has for that person. See what is good and godly in them. And if they're difficult to look at, stick with them until you can open your eyes to see and they can open their eyes to see back. And when you do, you take a step toward fulfilling God's dream for all of us. You open your heart a little wider, not only to give love, but also to receive love. For where you experience God, you will always experience love. And so may you live into God's dream and experience an abundance of love this week. Amen.